0: Yeah, so from the you know IR forensics perspective, you have to look at the beginning. You have to look at when the whole process starts, right?
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Security Superpowers. My name is Steve Ramey, and I'll be your host through this theater of cyber masterpieces. Joining us today is none other than Arite's own Brian Rydstrom. Brian is the Director of Forensics at Airtay. He is an alum of the Big Four, where he was one of the leaders of the U.S.-based forensics team and conducted global investigations. Brian, thank you for for joining
0: us today. Good evening, Steve. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Yeah, so you have, a, you have a pretty interesting background. Um, can you talk a little bit about your if you if you can, uh, you know your your time at Deloitte and, and what you were doing at that global level.
0: Yeah, so it's uh, it's interesting. I uh, originally started wanted to do law enforcement, um, kind of migrated into the consulting world. You know, I spent a number of years uh, at Kroll, and then um, left Kroll to uh, work with Deloitte, and spent the last eight years at Deloitte, really doing forensic investigations uh, on the global level. So. What often happens when you try to use like today's forensics tools is you know you don't have the ability to really uh, do investigations at scale. So while I was with Deloitte, I really um, helped build a, or lead a team to build a platform that, um, enabled us to do global investigation, uh, more efficiently.
1: Uh, that's a, that sounds pretty awesome. It, it's certainly a challenge, you know, one computer hard drive has got a you know ton of information on it. C- couldn't imagine, you know, hundreds of computer hard drives all from different geographic locations. So would you kind of get all those hard drives together all that information together? Um, and then, uh, overlay it with, with, uh, I guess, how, how do those forensic investigations occur?
0: Yeah, so that's the, that's the real challenge today with data being all over um, the cloud and in different types of devices. You have everything from mobile devices to you know, obviously your endpoints, servers, and then you have your cloud platforms. You know, how do you compile all that data into one place? So you know, really, it, it takes a number of different techniques to grab that data, um, normalize it, put it in a central place, and then perform analysis on it. And you know, really, that's that's um, what I've done over my career uh, a number of times. And you know, the focus there is really to to spend time looking at the actual analysis, spending time understanding what the threat actor did. You know, not really worrying about the processing piece. You know, loading loading data into tools. Um, if you can if you can develop uh, ways to to make that process more efficient, you can really gain some insights.
1: Yeah, that data manipulation aspect of it where your uh, normalization, whatever, whatever you want to call it, uh, certainly a huge overhead. I remember working with some of our, our folks in prior lives of their, their analytics teams. Um, they would spend days just formatting and reformatting and reformatting load files upon load files of, of uh, incorrectly exported you know, tables and such. And, and they'd pull their hair. They'd ask for the clients for you know, another output, um, just to receive the same thing. So they'd have to drill into it, figure out what the the breakdown was and work with the client to, to get them out. I can, I can totally see that same type of challenge occurring with, uh, with, you know, the repetitive nature of the artifacts we as forensic investigators uh, have to to comb through.
0: Yeah. I mean, the other challenge we see right now is, you know, especially with the remote working environment, you have people that are strewn about all different ge- geographic areas, so, you know, before you may have had offices in key central locations and, you know, you may have been able to centralize a lot of that data to be able to to back it up or or, or collect it and, you know, making the ability to do investigations a little more efficiently. Now with people being uh remote, it's really difficult with COVID. I mean, you have people working all over the place. Um, most of the time people are working out of their houses or, you know, out of different locations than they normally would in a traditional business environment. So that makes things you know, much more difficult to do collections. And it really requires some additional techniques to to complete those collections, uh, make sure you're getting the information you need in a timely manner so that we can normalize or grab all that data and, um, you know, do a, do an efficient analysis across it. You,
1: you triggered a memory. I remember uh, I was in Brazil, found a, a, a forensic investigation, um, and on my way back, I landed in Atlanta to a phone call, ask me if I could, you know, reroute my schedule. Cause I was the only one that, that was available. Quote unquote, I was literally flying. Yeah. I was the only one available <laughs> to go to, <laughs> to go to Arizona. Right. And I, I lived in DC at the time. So I'm in Atlanta. They want me to rebook to go to arizona and, and do some data collection out there and this is this is years ago this is like 2010 right way before the the work at home the true work at home days really took shape like what we know from you know the covet era and uh I, I i rearranged my schedule i get to this uh I get to this, um, you know, executive's house, literally at his house. His kids are out in the front yard playing. I pull up, uh, walk inside, and he wouldn't let me leave with his computer. I had to sit in his kitchen. Set up my imaging station and image the computer right then and there. So, uh, believe me, I, I can totally relate to having the creative, uh, the creativity come through with data collection, as a lot of uh, these people work from home nowadays. All right, so I want to, you know, while we're on this theme of, of data collection, forensic investigations, I guess you know, at Arite I understand you to, to lead the forensics. Um, you know, what, what's uh, what's your day to day about? What goes into leading a team of a hundred plus? Incident responders and forensic investigators uh, to help our clients, you know, come from this really chaotic state of of a, of a ransomware infection of a, a you know extortion to a kind of clean, almost unscathed type of version with them several weeks weeks later. What's what's that day to day about?
0: Yeah, so from the you know IR forensics perspective, you have to look at the beginning. You have to look at when the whole process starts right you have you have our clients that are probably having the worst day they've had uh from the business perspective right think of it like they, everything was great at work and now things just exploded and they're really trying to figure out how they you know do simple tasks how do you access email how do you you know communicate with people because those systems are just potentially no longer functioning or no longer accessible so at the end of the day, you know, a lot of our efforts are really working to help understand what the situation is with the client. What is the background of the incident? What has happened? What actions have been taken by the IT and security teams um, in the time since the incident happened? And it may be that in some cases, not a lot has happened because it 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 just started, or maybe they've taken systems offline. The company is completely down, and no one can can access you know email. They can't access their file shares. And so really, it's trying to understand what is the data landscape, uh, what systems are up, what systems are potentially impacted, and then really diving into what systems need to be collected. And there's kind of two approaches to collection, right? If you go back, the traditional approach from you know 20 plus years ago when I started, it was go grab the whole hard drive, image that whole hard drive, and then you'll process it and analyze it. And you know that's great when it was you know, 17 gigs when I started or 10 gigs, right? Now it's terabytes and terabytes of data and imaging the whole drive is going to take hours and hours of time. We don't have that kind of time. So, you know, we have to do um, collections that grab and preserve the forensic artifacts in a forensics manner, um, allow us to see the data that we need to see to analyze the, uh, the trail that's left behind by the threat actor so that may entail in some cases doing um, collections that are you know not necessarily full disk forensic images in some cases maybe it is doing a full disk forensic image or collecting a ram image Um, it just depends on what the situation is and and a lot of it really really depends on what's already been done uh, by the it team and the security team
1: Yeah, the uh, the smaller the client, the the murkier the environment, Um, you know, their their MSPs are are focused on getting them back up and running. And they they trample all over the evidence. Uh, Some been through the the fire once or once before. And so they're they're pretty good. You kind of pick up on that quick. Um, Yeah, certainly, uh, you know, what's what has that IT team done uh, before we arrive on site to to help help? preserve the, the data in that state for us to be able to investigate
0: thoroughly. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, my, my, my approach after that, you know, once we get the collections, we really start going down the route of, you know, traditional forensic analysis, trying to identify, you know, what the actor has done, uh, where they have gone. Have they looked at other systems in the environment? Have they, um, have they established privilege uh, so that they can, you know, gain access to other systems? Have they then, uh, done network reconnaissance to, to see what network servers are accessible. Um, are they moving laterally within the environment to other servers or domain controllers? Um, you know, really starting to go through some of the traditional um, cyber forensic investigation techniques that we would use. Uh, and then at the end of the day, a, a lot of my time is really spent translating those technical findings to an understandable or, or understandable format or, you know, really what I see is an easy, easy narrative story. Um, because at the end of the day, people, you know, a lot of the people that we talk to don't always um, have the, the technical background or depth to be able to understand all the nitty gritty. They really want a simple explanation of what happened. And and at the, you know, trying to depict that through some sort of visualization or some sort of narrative or story um, really, in my experience, has been, you know, the best uh, course of action. I can recall. Um, a story where I had to explain a really complex technical topic, and um, we explained that really t- complex te- technical topic, which was basically data exfiltration, but it was through multiple devices and through various cloud platforms, and we ended up having to do that through a, basically like a big pictogram, um, and and the person that we were explaining it to was very non technical at the time, and and we were kind of told prepped in advance that you know we may need to you know we can't really get too technical but the problem was the depth of the data to really understand what this person had done was so technical that we had to bring it back up we created you know this huge powerpoint that had um graphics upon graphics there were really no words and uh we ended up providing the the presentation and at the end you know the the, the response was really great the uh in, the recipient kind of said to us hey like this was very clear I haven't understood a lot of what's been uh, relayed to me, like in the past, related to this matter. But this was extremely clear, and it was because we were able to narrate it through a story and explain that through visualizations.
1: Yeah, I like how you said that. Narrate it through a story. You know, it's it's really piecing together the who, what, when, where, and why. and the majority of the time, the who you know we don't know their actual identities. So we, we, we in the security community, come up with a, a uh, alter ego. You know, a wizard spider or APT twenty nine, and that why you know there's a, a you know a few different reasons. The why the majority of investigations are are research and development focused uh, to steal state secrets, or uh, you know financially motivated, um, and then the uh, the when that seems pretty easy cuz a lot of the artifacts are are date time stamped uh, the what well that gets gets into the the why and and then the, the how um that's pretty the pretty much the trickiest piece the how right
0: yeah the the how is actually really challenging um you know a lot of times we can see the what so we can track through you know the various forensic artifacts what the what the threat actor did where did they go? Um, did they do kind of some sort of reconnaissance to navigate through the folder structure, um, identify key folders? Did they dig deeper into those folders? Um, you know, what? Wh- where did they go within the network environment? What files did they actually um, access or open? What, uh, where did they go from there? Did they look at other servers? Did they look at um, connecting to remote servers or, or, or other machines or shares within the network? And we can see that type of activity, but, you know, how did it happen? How did they get into the environment? That can really become a challenge, right? And that's really focused on what I would say identifying the root cause or really the attack vector. And what we find a lot of times is that the the threat actors are getting pretty smart. They utilize anti-forensics techniques. They've changed a lot of their behaviors so that data isn't written to disk as often as maybe we would like. So in a lot of cases, we have to look in in other areas – uh, we have to look in in RAM images. We have to look at, um, you know, unallocated space to see what data might be left behind, or you know, system files like like hyperfill or page file to see if there's any remnants um, of of strings or or information that that might tell us what commands were potentially run by the threat actor. And at the end of the day, a lot of times what we find is putting together the pieces from how that specific uh, threat actor. Um, whatever their name or code name may be, how they actually function. so in the past, when we look at you know hundreds of cases over time, what has happened with that threat actor? Do they typically do use a certain method to um, to gain privilege uh, across the network? Do they use a certain method to to stage their data is it is it through zip files or is it through like cl- like other utilities? Um, do they use cloud repositories to exfiltrate? Do they use um, other methods like SFTP sites or, you know, even even do they use other things like um, simple email transfers, right? I've even seen situations if you're looking at like a business email type compromise incident, you know, those type of incidents, a lot of times it's really taking information that's gained and then flipping that information back to leverage to basically modify like banking information and invoices or financial information so that they can then submit that invoice back within the company and it'll get paid. And so it's not always about exfiltrating data. Sometimes it's about taking data that's in the environment and modifying that data to, for some sort of gain, whether it be monetary gain, intelligence gain, um, password gain, right. They could use that to, to, uh, basically use it as a jumping point to spring off to other, other systems, other companies, other clients, and then, you know, launch a broader attack almost like a, like a hopping point.
1: Yeah. So, so I want to, want to take a step back. You mentioned a phrase uh, root cause. Uh, Can you, can you kind of describe what root cause is and, and why that's critical to the investigations?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, root cause is essentially how did the threat actor get into the environment Right? What did they? What method did they leverage to to get into the environment? So, you know, that can become a challenge for us because of the anti forensics techniques. But an example would be, you know, did they basically gain credentials from a phishing attack and utilize those credentials to then log in? So, if you think about something like an you know three sixty five situation. You know, if, if you use a phishing email and send, you know, pretend you're Microsoft O365, um, you know, support, and you get this link that says, hey, click here to reset your password. If you click there and put your password credentials in, and it, it looks like it's, you know, because of some sort of issue or, or it doesn't work, you know, that could be a potential avenue where they can gain those creds. Now, then the question becomes, how do they utilize those creds? Can they then log into the O365 environment or tenant um, using those credentials and then start to navigate and do some reconnaissance through the email to see, all right, how should I escalate my, you know, who should I focus or how should I escalate my attack across the environment? You know, there's a lot of intelligence and research that's done by a lot of these threat actor groups. It's not like it's a random, in in a lot of cases, it's not like it's a random attack with no intelligence or research. In some cases, you know, they'll they'll do blasts out to try and target certain people. Um, But when they do that, they could blast like 20,000 packages out to 20,000 different companies but they're not after all 20,000 companies. They're probably after a small subset of those companies for specific information, and they're going to look to see, hey, is there anything there? So, you know, what is the root cause? How did they get in? Was it a software vulnerability? Was it a result of credential harvesting um, that they found or, or obtained, and then they use those credentials to get into the system? Did they get in through, like, an open port? Did they get in through... A machine that was, you know, not protected on the network. That's essentially the root cause. Um, and a lot of times, we're we're asked to try and find the root cause. And in some cases, we we can find it. And in some cases, we can't. And and a lot of times, it, the reason we can is because it's, it's it's really twofold. It's one, anti forensics that may have been done on the systems, and then two, um, not only anti forensics, but how long? What is the time period? So. You know, if you look at the data, are we looking at the right time period? If the incident happened, for example, March 1st, um, and we're looking at, you know, February and March, have they been in the environment before that? So a lot of times we have to take a look. We have to look at the the holistic picture to understand where did this threat actor go? What are the breadcrumbs that that trace where they went? And is that data still available that would help us solve the question of root cause? I can give you an example. Um, We had a, you know, I worked a case where we were able to trace the entire process from the attacker leveraging from one machine out to many machines. And then eventually getting to a file share where they were able to um, data stage uh, or stage the data and then exfiltrate it out. But the problem was we couldn't identify the back piece. We couldn't identify what had happened before that, and so the reason the reason for that was because um, a lot of those systems at the time had been uh, rebooted, had been turned off, had been powered down, and the information that we were looking for in that case was essentially not resident on disk. So it was resident in RAM only, and that RAM had been modified or changed or altered. So because of the rebooting process. So therefore we we didn't have insight to be able to answer the question of root cause. In that case, a lot of times what we'll do is try to understand what the TTPs tell us, um, what the pattern of activity is for that threat actor so that we can then um, take their typical behaviors and try to answer some of those questions um, that might be related uh, to their typical behaviors and patterns. And, and, and then put that against the case to say, all right, if we can't answer root cause, can we answer the other pieces around it to so at least provide more, more information and context?
1: I really hate being in the position when clients ask, why can't you find root cause? Right. It's the most difficult thing, one to find and two, to explain why you can't find it. Cause you could do great work up to that point, And then they kind of look at you with, like you have three heads and they say you did all this and you still can't tell me how they got in?
0: Well, I think there's, there's two different ways to answer that question. There's how you believe, you know, what the potential root causes, right? Based on the experience and expertise and knowledge that we have. And then there's the, can you actually back it up based on the data that you're seeing? And in, in many cases, you know, you, you, you can put together a picture of what happened, right? So you can use all that information, you can put together a, poten- a potential picture that says, based on the patterns of behavior of this threat actor group, all our experience, we know the following, ha- the following events happened and that the root clause based on the typical activity is X, right? Now, while we can't see that because of X, Y, and Z, like I talked about, because that data is no longer accessible or no longer available, um, that does give a picture. You know, I think the other piece to that is, can we go back and actually find the data that supports it? And I think the biggest piece that I that I've worked with over the years is basically being upfront. If you if you can't find the data, if it's not there, it's not there. We can't manufacture it. Right. At the end of the day, we can only tell you what what we know from the data that's available. The other piece is though we have to make sure we look right. We have to make sure we cover the pieces Um, We look for evidence of root cause. We've covered all the avenues. We've looked at the threat intelligence. um, And I know you had some previous people on for threat intelligence. You know, we try to integrate that threat intelligence. We try to integrate the monitoring that's being done across the network so that we get a full picture of what's going on and can try to apply that um, to help answer that cause or that question of root cause, at least as best as we can based off the data that's available
1: yeah, I can't emphasize that, that uh, threat intelligence piece uh, any more than you just did. You know recently I was asked, you know how would you describe a world-class security program? Um, knowing that there is no standard. There is no standard uh, to say this is the epitome of a, a world class. you know this is the exemplar. Uh, we want to be like you as a world-class security program, um, really all there are are just standards out there. And the standards say, you know, do you have this check the box? Yes. Do you have this check the box? Yes. Um, but when you really get into the threat intelligence piece of it, it's so brand new. It's such a, a foreign, concept to a lot of security programs a lot of organizations a lot of these programs don't know how to actually leverage it correctly Um, and so with my answer to to a world-class security program it needs to have a robust threat intelligence um, component to it because that threat intel It's like you're an undercover agent. Uh, You're sitting in the dark web with with all the uh, the, the bad guys, the crooks, the criminals, listening to them, watching what they're talking about. And then you take that information, bring it back to your security program and say, we need to harden our perimeter. We need to harden these types of defenses because the... Theme in the underground is moving in this direction. We need to be prepared for it.
0: Right? Yeah. No. I mean, that's the threat intel is is a key point. I think the key that I that I've seen over the years is integrating that threat intel with analysis. Right? Um, you know, threat intel is great. Uh, a lot of times, what happens is people will look at the threat intel and they'll say, "Okay." Like, give me the indicators of compromise for a specific variant and let me take a look at those indicators and let me see if I see them on the system. And, that, and that's a great first step, but there's more to it than that, right? You have TTPs, you have typical patterns, you have other pieces of information that you have to look for. And then you also have to realize that even if you were to take all, those, all that threat intel that you had and throw it against the system and you came up with no matches that doesn't mean that there's not someone in that network. It doesn't mean that same group is not in that network because they can change their, their um, signatures a little bit. They can change their techniques a little bit so that they don't match whatever indicators or, or, or patterns we have right there. You know, we're playing catch up at the end of the day, you know, it's think of it like the, like the law enforcement officer that's trying to chase the bad guy. The bad guy's one step ahead. Right? How do we get ahead? We have to really look at what the patterns are. And you talked a little bit about data analytics um, earlier uh, earlier tonight, and that's you know really one of the things that I that I've seen um, here at Arate is really trying to look at the data, trying to apply some analytics to that to see what type of patterns um, are available for a specific threat actor group. Um, what are their what's their typical behavior? Uh, what do they you know do they typically exfiltrate data if so, you know what what methods are typically what methods have we seen as being identified for that exfiltration and then understanding that um, in a lot of cases you may not be able to find that exact indication, but it doesn't mean that there's not another indication out there. I can give you a story I did a I did a case years ago. Um, you know, obviously high level because I can't go into too much detail, but I did a case years ago where I was looking at a threat actor group that I got in and was looking at navigating the network. And one of the things that came up was all the, the known identifiers weren't matching. And when we actually applied the forensics and looked at the data and looked at the trends and the patterns and the timeline analysis, you, we started to see things that just didn't look normal. And it turned out, when I actually looked at that information very closely, that it wasn't a known um, method for that group. It was a new method that they had used. So at the end of the day, that that new method was something we hadn't seen, but if I had just you know not looked deeper, we wouldn't have seen that, and it ended up being um, a key find. And and once we picked on that, we were able to pivot and, and really identify the rest of the activity to support the investigation. But you know, those are the type of things you need to look deeper into. You can't just just kind of stop when you when you run when you apply the threat intel and you don't see any matches. Um, that doesn't mean that there's not something going on.
1: Certainly. So when you when you talk about TTPs, um, you know, things that come to my mind are, are specific malware that that these these bad guys use. You know, have you have you heard of a malware called Cobalt Strike? I have. Yeah. Would you say that's the new emotet? Yeah, and, right. I, and I don't mean by like code comparison. I just mean by uh, the general popularity.
0: Yeah, I mean cool. Cobalt Strike is interesting. It's you know it's been out there. I mean it originated as a as a as a tool that you use when to use by people as some penetration tests really, right? I mean at the end of the day, um, but then it got picked up by by the attackers um, as a way to to, to leverage that. Um, you know, really, if I recall, correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was like a simulation uh, software for, for red teaming, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, full on post exploitation uh, framework. So basically, once the uh, the threat actor got into the network, um, they would just deploy this at... Uh, payload would call home, and now your computer network is uh, you know, basically a bunch of dumb terminals uh, taking commands from the attacker's uh, CNC server. Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think what we've seen a lot with Cobalt Strike is that um, it can be used for so many things because of the various capabilities. So, you know, a lot of times what we found is that it's not always, well, it has the capability to do many things. It's not always used by each group the same way. So it really boils down to applying the information that we get um, and that we've seen from past matters and that we get from threat intel and, and using that information to understand, well, how was Cobalt Strike used in this situation? And then looking at the patterns of what we're seeing on forensics, if we don't see indications of certain activity that we would expect... Then we need to look at Cobalt Strike and say, "Well, is it possible that Cobalt Strike was utilized for that capability here? Did it have the potential to be used?" And and the answer, um, oftentimes, is that it it may have had the potential to be used. The challenge with Cobalt Strike is it doesn't leave very little footprint uh, on the drive. You're basically looking at a lot of data that would be available in RAM. And in a lot of times, you know what I see is that, you know, IT takes takes a, a takes a pass at, at shutting down the system, rebooting the system, doing some sort of activity um, to protect their environment, right? But that does at times affect the ability to grab RAM. So we try to grab RAM as early as we can, when we can, if it's appropriate. But um, a lot of times I find Cobalt Strike as being something that is definitely a challenge for us these days.
1: And we see a varying usage of, of Cobalt Strike. We have, we have some bad guys that leverage the... You know, end to end spectrum of of a full blown Cobalt Strike deployment, uh, but then we see some guys just use it as a way to remote into the systems, and then they they resume their Bowling China shop ways to uh, to move laterally and, and um, exfiltrate data. Would you agree with that, or have you seen something different?
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's a it's a great um, C two structure. Um, oftentimes we see it used for for C two or for or for moving around the network doing doing reconnaissance. But it, yeah, as you said, it can also be used for that exfiltration component at times. And so uh, a lot of times, what we find is um, data that that if we don't see indications of exfiltration, but we see everything leading up to it, and Cobalt Strike was in play, um, there 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 is often a, a question of, is it possible that that data was exfiltrated? What I would typically say in that case is usually I would I would expect to see some sort of access and staging that's, a, that's happening even with cobalt strike. Um, so if you see that activity, then it, it kind of leans more toward why would you go this far to stage data and then not take it, right? Sometimes we have to take a step back and get away from the technical and say like, what is the logical point here, what? How do we look at this at the 500-foot view, not the you know 10 feet view? Because I think sometimes we get so caught up in the technical detail. Like, okay, I'm looking for exfiltration, but I don't see it. I see all this other stuff that I missed the larger picture of. Well, wait a minute. Why would someone do all this to get to the point of staging data to then not exfiltrate it? So the question there is not was it was it exfiltrated? It's how was it exfiltrated? Right. I mean that's just that's just my take on it but I you know I think we always have to take a step back and look at that big picture.
1: <laughs> yeah, no you're you're triggering uh triggering some flashbacks to uh the use of, of cobalt strike to trigger a program called r or, or Mega Sync, and exactly. those programs pipe it out, pipe the data outbound, and you don't see a typical opening a web browser and, and downloading, you know, or excuse me, opening a web browser and navigating to a cloud site and then dragging, and dropping the upload. It's all almost all automatic from from these guys now.
0: Yeah, no, that's to make it easier and more efficient, right? So the, you know, if you if you deploy, you know, if you deploy. Uh scripting you can you can do this more often and you know the the uh the profile is that you can potentially make more money right if you're in a, if you're a threat actor so i mean that presents more of a challenge for us we have to be on our game we have to be aware of the different um different sites like our clone, our clone mega Sync, um make sure that we understand what sites are out there and, and potentially being used and really that's where the threat intel piece really comes in you know
1: yeah yeah it really does i mean i I think the uh these guys are taking jerry Maguire's uh famous line uh to heart way too much you know doing more with less (laughs) i like it Yeah, you know, you wouldn't think that uh, bad guys watch Jerry Maguire, but that's a little of my thread intel to share with the community. Awesome, Brian. So I, I do know that you, you know, Cobalt Strike is used to exfiltrate data um, from a, a forensic standpoint. And th- th- by the way, there's there's a lot of other tools. Cobalt Strike is the you know the new uh, sliced bread. Um, yeah. But, uh, um, you know, from a forensics perspective, are you able to arrive to 100% certainty of what data was actually taken?
0: That's a great question. So uh, what I would say is, as a whole, the answer is going to be I can arrive to 100% certainty of the data that was accessed. Um, in some cases, if I see staging, I can arrive at... A um, conclusion of the data being staged, and then if I if I do see exfiltration, I may be able to actually get there and confirm what data was indeed transferred. Um, we are fortunate enough at Arate to actually have a, a negotiations team, and so we've had a lot of success um, engaging the, the the threat actor in in communications and negotiations, and really try to obtain information uh, from them around you know, what data they have or what data they might have almost as a, like a proof of life scenario, right? I don't know if you've ever seen that movie proof of life, um, you know, from the old K and R kidnapping and ransom days, but you know, it applies here, right? Uh, you know, if we can get some proof of life from them as to what they took, we can then start to match that up to the activity we're seeing. And and we've had some real success doing that and and being able to go back to the client and say, Hey, you know, we've seen activity that shows staging, that shows access. You know, we, we know data has been exfiltrated, um, but we don't know how much data has been exfiltrated. Or, we, or, sorry, we don't know what data has been exfiltrated. We can tell you how much data in many cases through the logs. Um, but then the question becomes, like, if I see access to a folder, and I can give you a perfect example. Uh, we had a case where we saw access to a specific root folder. We didn't know if there was like subcontent within that folder that was taken or if it was just the whole folder or if it was only accessed. And um, we ended up uh, engaging in some discussions with the threat actor, got some information that led us to believe that 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 um, there were some files um, that potentially were ones we hadn't seen before. And we went back to the client, talked to the client about those files and found out that they were within the folder in question. They were actually files that were typically stored in that folder. So at that point we you know we were able to confirm that yes those files were indeed at risk or they were indeed uh, taken and the other files were indeed at risk of being taken because if that whole folder was taken then everything within it would have been taken. So that, that basically triggered a, a data mining exercise um, within that folder and a review to understand you know, what potential information was within that folder. Is there any P, PII, PHI confidential information that might you know, trigger reporting requirements or something along those lines?
1: Yeah, so, so there's enough information on disk to, to paint a Picasso style picture, but if you want that 4K Ultra HD version then there's a there's multiple different data points that, that you need to help correlate all the information together.
0: Exactly. Yep. That was a great analogy.
1: Nice. I just uh, hung my um my TV on the wall. My my youngest is uh he goes up to this TV screen and he starts smashing his toys on it, right? I've had this 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 flat screen for close to ten years now. It's dated, but you know, it works. I don't need to 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 get rid of it, right? It's 1080p back when those things were where the most popular thing out there. So I went out and bought this swivel mount, got it on my wall. I had the thing mounted in about an hour and a half. And me with any craftsman projects, uh, it takes me a long, long while. Cause there's always something I miss. So I get the, I get the thing mounted, get the TV on there. Everything is level, right? Everything's level. I'm loving this. I'm like I'm way ahead of schedule. This is perfect. I go to put the brackets on to hang the soundbar underneath the TV <laughs> And the TV's too low because the way the brackets hang, the sound bar is going to hit the, the console. You know, the TV used to sit on. I'm not going to move that so the kid can't run up there. And I'm just like, oh. So I tell my wife and she says, well, just, you know, just move it up a few inches. Said, yeah, all right, <laughs> fine. You know, I did it once easy. I'll, I'll do it again. So I took the TV off, unmounted it, remounted it to the wall. I was a smidge off on the level. And then I get everything hooked up, soundbar on, TV works just fine. My wife comes walking over. She goes, why is it so high? (laughs) (laughs) I can't win.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's funny. I look at, I look at these threat actor groups. I mean, they're running like full businesses, right? So, you know, their processes are defined, right? You go hire the professional to come in to install that TV, for example. You know, they know those little tricks, like they know, hey, like I should do X first because later on when I go to put the soundbar on, if I don't put the brackets and I don't align it right and account for that, you know, I'm going to have a problem. The, the threat actor groups are kind of the same way. They've honed their processes to the point where they're, they're kind of automatic and, and they know what, what needs to be done. And for us as investigators, we're really just trying to keep up and utilize the information, try to stay one step ahead of them as best we can. Um, and, and I think, you know, with a lot of information sharing with, with increased communication across the various industries and, you know, various groups that are out there, um, various teams and sharing a threat intel. You know, I think we're, we're slowly making progress at, at getting a better picture of what's happened um, and what what the behaviors are. But it's taken a lot of these, you know, I'll say larger scale events to really um, drive that right i mean that's what's caused better communication and better information sharing at least in my view so that way we can get closer to that expert that's hanging that tv and, and not have to diy it at at your house
1: yeah well i happen to enjoy the diy well i mean uh, no I, I but by the way i completely agree with your sentiment there we as a security community are are, are terrible at at uh Collaborating on information, we we share information, uh, but there's some stuff we keep close to our chests that that um uh needs to get out there, uh, that doesn't. Uh, like when um the ciphers for ransomware um ransomware encryption are broken, and there's companies that can build decryptors. You know, there's other companies that will take that information and publicize it, uh, alerting the threat actors. But right. the behind the door scenes, um, you know, it, that information flow, it just, it's not there. You have to be in that in circle and then you have to remember to look at your text messages Then you have one. And the other side is you have to remember that it exists. So when you put in that position, you can at least, you know, leverage that information. So, you know, we're really not good at, at that information sharing and we need to get a lot better um, uh, and, and essentially mature just as the the organized crime has.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I think forensic investigations, I mean, it's, it's a piece of the puzzle, right? It's a big piece of the puzzle, but, um, you know, there's a lot more to it, like we've talked about. There's the threat intel. There's, you know, the monitoring piece, right? So, I mean, if you have thousands of endpoints, it's not realistic to go collect thousands of endpoints in a big corporation. So at the end of the day, you know, putting out some sort of monitoring on there, endpoint monitoring tool on there to grab... And, and monitor that, the activity on those endpoints is critical um, to at least help us see what's going on, and then share that information from the endpoint monitoring tool, from the threat intelligence, from what forensics is pulling together, and really paint, like you said, that Picasso picture uh, based on all that information, what are we seeing? And then based off, you know, the the um, communications with the client, what's happening in 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 their environment, what are they seeing? What other things are going on that maybe we're not even privy or aware of? And then putting that entire picture together for them to say, "Here's what we're seeing." You know, here's the situation. I actually had one um, earlier today that was, um, you know, related to various ransomware groups and how some of these ransomware threat actors are actually, you know, potentially starting to move to other ransomware groups. So, you know, some of the behaviors we've seen with, you know, groups like Darkside that, you know, maybe are, um, you know, being dissolved or taken down, you know, what's going to happen with, with those individuals? Are they now going to go out on their own? Are they now going to go in with other threat actor groups? Um, we don't know, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, a lot of it is going to depend on looking at the information and, and, and seeing if we start to see those patterns pop up in other places.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's gonna be a good story to watch unfold in the uh, the coming days, weeks, and months, as uh as these groups disband and then resurface under either new new uh, monikers or under completely new teams. Um, scary, uh, also exciting to watch because uh, the the you know as we always say, as you mentioned earlier in the in the, the conversation, actually, um, you know, we're always behind. These guys are always you know. 10, 20, 30 steps in front of us, and we're always playing catch up. All right, Brian. So I'd like to, you know, thank you for uh, for joining us here today on on the uh, security superpowers. Uh, any uh, any recommendation, last words, advice, recipes, good bourbons that you uh that you'd uh, kind of share with your your listeners here?
0: One of the things we're seeing really is the ability to share information across the community so that we can really take down and and help uh, help take down these uh, threat actor groups. Yeah, so I think the key thing here to remember at the end of the day is um, communicate between forensics and the various other areas, uh, cyber threat intelligence, endpoint monitoring, and then really you know maintain that communication and then share uh, what what what's coming out of that uh, combined effort with the community so that we can all. Be more informed to try to uh, defeat this this common enemy.
1: I completely agree. You know, um, there's not many folks that emphasize communication as a uh, as a takeaway, um, but you know, you're, you're totally right. The more communicative we are, the more success we'll have. So, Brian, I'd like to, to thank you for, for joining us today uh, on this episode of, of Security Superpowers uh, to talk through forensic investigations, um, the challenges, the necessity uh, for them. And I hope that you will return on a future episode.
0: Thanks, Steve. This has been, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate uh, the listeners' time and uh, look forward to potentially coming back and uh, having further discussions. Perfect.